Hey guys, this is Mag, and this is You Don't Want to Know, the podcast. So first thing I want to say this week is I really hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode because I know I did. It was so much fun to record with Kelly, and I really hope you guys went and watched or watched listen to her podcast. Good luck everyone else with her friend because I just think she's so funny and they're hilarious together. So if you didn't already, definitely check them out. Also, I have not heard if she did the asking the time or day thing dream or in her vivid dream, but I will let you know right away or maybe we'll talk about it when I get featured in their podcast. So either way, we will get an answer. I just can't imagine what it's like to have like awareness in their dream. Be like, I'm dreaming. I can control this. You're Batman. Let's go fight crime. I don't know. But that just seems super cool to me. So I'm really excited to hear her answer if she's ever able to do that. Like I said, I'll let you guys know right away. Second thing is that I am so, so, so sorry that I sounded so horrible on the podcast. I didn't realize. Okay, so I knew I had a cold or like congestion, whatever. I didn't realize I sounded that bad until I re-listened to the podcast. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) that's going to be rough. I'm so sorry. But it was so fun. So I hope it's worth pushing through my nasally disgusting voice. And this week, guys, I just feel like a ray of sunshine. And I hope you can feel that through your headphones or speaker, whatever it is. So once again, my apologies. My movie recommendation for this week and in honor of my 23rd episode is the movie 23 with the now retired Jim Carrey. And that's kind of scandalous if you haven't heard about that yet, but not worried about that right now. Maybe in a later episode, movie 43, Movie 43 is a very funny movie, but movie tw- or the movie 23 is about Jim Carrey's character who finds out that 23 revolves around everything and he kind of tries to like disprove it and he goes crazy because he realizes it truly is everywhere. I would give this about a seven and a half, eight, and that's because it actually freaked me out. When I walked away from that movie, I started like seeing 23. Not a bad movie overall. I would recommend watching it if you get bored and want like kind of something different. In other news, on February 10th, which is coming up very soon, it will be one year of the You Don't Want to Know podcast, which is super exciting because I never thought that I would be putting out podcast episodes on true crime every other week. So I just want to say thank you to anyone that has listened right away or listened to all the episodes or if this is your first episode Thanks so much for listening and giving me someone to talk to for 45 minutes or whatever, just about true crime, which I love to do. So thanks again. And another two movies, actually, that I'm so pumped about. And like, I have not gotten scared to watch a movie ever, I think, in my life. I am scared to watch The Mother of Evil Dead or whatever. That movie looks scary. Like... I go through through these things where like I look into the darkness and I picture things in my head that are just not helpful. I think of so many scary things and the Evil Dead movie, they're like 
putting all the scary things that I put in my head, they somehow tapped in and it looks like they put it into a movie because just the way it's filmed and the things I saw, those are things that I think of in my head and it's not good. So I'm terrified to see that movie, which makes me excited to see that movie. Then there is another Stephen King's movie uh, that I didn't even realize was coming out until I saw like a 10 second trailer for The Boogeyman. And I said Stephen King's. Stephen King. Sorry, that's embarrassing. Then finally, guys, there's an M. Night Shyamalan movie coming out. I just have mixed feelings about it. I don't know if I'm going to see it because I just have been disappointed or let down by the other couple movies that came out. And I don't even knock on the cabin, I think is what it's called. So I don't know. Uh, Maybe I'll see it. You know, I'll probably see it because I love watching movies, but uh, I'm just, I don't have high hopes for it. Uh, I hate to say it, but I don't, unfortunately. But I think that's, oh my gosh, I almost forgot. Guys, it's it's been a rough week. So I have, I'm going through a breakup right now. Panic at the Disco is no more. And I am not okay. I legitimately had to hold back tears when I found out they were no more. And it's funny because it's just Brendan Urie. The original um, band members left right away and then he got new ones and then they left and I think they got new ones one more time and they left. So it's just been him basically this whole time. And that's fine because we love a Brendan Urie. Honestly, we really, really do. But they have he has been with me my like whole life he helps me find myself, like my punk self. And I love him for that. And now I hate him for leaving me. But I get it. He's starting a family with his beautiful wife, Sarah. And that's great. But like, don't stop writing music. You have your own recording studio. Like just record music. Don't go on concerts except to where I'm from because that's necessary. I'm so bummed out because I was gonna see him in his last tour. But then the... the, the day of the concert, like two hours before the concert, he canceled it. And I was in the, the town and I was so excited. And then I got to the venue. I'm like, this has to be a joke. They're like, no, he canceled it. And they didn't reschedule it. And I just couldn't believe it. So I was going to see him on his last tour, but he canceled it. So I saw a bunch of people commenting on the status, like he's going to go to a reunion concerts. And like, that's what I'm waiting for is like an oldie um concert tour whatever where he plays all of his old music because i love all of his old music but in lieu of panic at the disco dismembering oh it still hurts to say i have decided to bless you guys with two bands that or i guess one's a band one's just one dude that sing to my soul the first one is Barnes Courtney, who I have a huge crush on. <laughs> I've met him a couple times just from like meet and greet stuff. We're not on like a first name basis or whatever. <laughs> but he, oh gosh, I just think he's so talented and I love his music. Then there's the Mono Skins, which it looks like main skin. I have no idea what it means. They're an Italian rock band. So some of their stuff, very, very, very little of their stuff is in Italian, but they just put out a new album and ho ho ho, it's max. Guys, it's so good. I love them so much. They're so good. And this is not like an ad or anything like that. This is 
just my genuine feelings that I'm just giving to you because I love when people recommend things to me. Honestly, I love it. So I just want to bless you guys with these things. So you're welcome. I hope you listen to it and enjoy them because they're just really good. And they're like classic rock and roll. Well, classic rock. Like it's a little harder than rock and roll. And I like that a lot. So if you want to check them out, that's great. My heart is in pain and it's empty. So I need to fill it with horror movies and rock and roll-ish rock stuff. So here it is. And obviously true crime. I didn't think I had to say that, but just in case, obviously true crime is filling the void. That is the shape of Brendan Urie's face. But end of rant, end of talking about my recommendations and on to why we are here, why I sit with my feet propped up on a laundry basket. The true crime. So let's get uncomfortable. Oh, shoot. I forgot. So I keep forgetting to do this. The thing I got for Christmas. So the tear away true crime calendar. So this is kind of just like an ongoing thing from last week's or two weeks ago. The thing I said about the guy lending the killer his car. And the quote is no car, no crime, no car, no consequences, no car, no murder. And that's from David Rimmer, the prosecutor in Ryan Howell's murder trial. If, in quotations, the killer had taken a bus or a taxi to the house, would the bus slash taxi driver have been charged under the same logic? No. Bus, taxi, no murder, question mark? So that makes sense. A common rebuttal to the prosecution's argument in the Howell case. Howell maintains that he was not aware his friend intended to commit a crime when he lent him his car. And then here we go with the favorite part. Okay, now we have all of the business taken care of. And now let's get uncomfortable. So this week's case is about a beautiful, beautiful woman named Simonette Mapes. And like, what a beautiful name too, Simonette. Simonette was born from Teresa and John Mapes. They had two kids. One of them was Little John. So John Mapes was John the second. So he's called John Sr. in this story. And then John the third is Little John. So that's the son of Teresa and John. And then they had a daughter, Simonette. And she was really the only girl. She had two cousins, two boy cousins and a brother. So she was kind of like the girl, you know, and it's so cute. John called her sissy because he couldn't pronounce Simonette because like what kid could do that at that age? So they kind of stuck with that name Sissy and she was called that throughout her life. So they belonged to a very, very tight knit Italian family and it was really stereotypical where they were just a really big family, had really fun, loud parties, just a good time all around. John Sr. was in the Air Force. So unfortunately, even though their family was big and super close, they had to travel and they traveled every 18 to two years. So I just can't even imagine that. I lived in the same house my entire life until I like moved out. I never moved in as like a child. So that just blows my mind. And it would be so hard for the kids because you're constantly traveling. It must be so hard to make friends. And they definitely felt that. But at least they had each other. And little John was just so protective over his sister. And so was just the whole family because she was like the baby of 
the aunts, the uncles, the cousins, obviously the mom and dad and the brother. So everyone just felt this overwhelming like protection of her. And everyone just said she was the sweetest little girl in the world. And then <laughs> little John was described uh, describes having no filter. And there's actually a family video of Christmas time where I guess I think it's Uncle Jim or Uncle Joe. I think it's Uncle Joe dresses up as Santa <laughs> and little John's like, are you Uncle Joe? I think you're Uncle Joe. You sound like Uncle Joe. And you can just hear in the background, stop, John. <laughs> so it's just so cute. So it's just a cute dynamic how John has no filter and Sissy just is the sweetest little thing in the world. So like I said, they were just constantly moving, but luckily they came back to family for every single holiday, even the 4th of July. And they had this huge party once the sun went down, they were just lighting off fireworks like crazy. It was just so much fun. So when the kids were around middle school age, I didn't get an exact date, John Sr. had requested to transfer the kids to Staten Island, where the family was, and finally st- settled down because he just kind of saw that they needed that home. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I'm looking at a crack in the door and I like I was saying, like my mind freaks me out. I like can picture someone just standing there staring at me and it's freaking me out. Sorry to get off base, but that's what I'm thinking about right now. So back to the wholesome part of the story. John wanted the kid to have a permanent place to like kind of settle down and just call home and think of as home. So he asked for a transfer, uh, transfer and he got it. The kids settled down like super fast. They got to go to high school and they just did great. They excelled and it was where they were meant to be. Sissy actually graduated high school with honors. She was just ridiculously smart, just blown every, blew everyone away. And another amazing thing about Sissy is that she didn't even like brag about it. She just was smart. She got her work done. She did what she needed to do and she never made anyone feel bad about it. And It's so easy as like a super intelligent person to make other people feel less for not being at their level, but she didn't do that. So just another reason why Sissy was just a beautiful, beautiful person. So the summer after she graduated high school, she started working with disabled children and she decided this is my calling. I want to be a teacher. I want to teach people. So she started going to college for that. And while she was in college, and I'm sorry, this seems like it's going so fast, at least it does to me. I don't have too much information on her background. Otherwise, I would go like a little slower with more detail, but unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot. But while she was in college, one of her friends introduced her to Jonathan Creppy. They had actually gone to high school together, but and, and actually they graduated in the same class, but they didn't know each other. So they obviously went to New York. New York is giant. So this makes sense. Coming from a small town where everyone knew everyone, it's like, how do you not know each other? But it makes sense. So he was going to be a teacher as well. And they fell in love almost instantly. And they seemed perfect for each other. They had the same sense of humor. They were always playing pranks on each other. And there's so many videos of them laughing and dancing and being goofy and they like went on vacations together so they seemed so sweet and you can find that footage of them just like singing at the top of their lungs in a car or dancing in the middle of the street just the cutest stuff ever 
They ended up dating for four years and Sissy decided that they were ready to move in together. And I'm sure this was like a collaborated thought, but they couldn't afford to move in anywhere because everything is so expensive. But Sissy knew that her parents had kind of like a condo type of deal. Well, I guess not condo, like an apartment type of deal in their basement. And she asked if it were possible that Sissy and Jonathan moved into the basement and paid rent because they could afford that. And her parents said that they would only allow it if their relationship were to be a permanent thing. So basically saying, you can't do that. Like we, we want you guys to at least have some kind of commitment on the table. So they understood that. And that Christmas he proposed to her and threw a huge engagement party because at that point they couldn't afford a place. So they definitely could not afford a wedding and she has so much friends and so many friends and so much family that she needs to save up a lot of money to have a giant wedding because her wedding was also beautiful. But they had a huge engagement party and it was almost like a reception of a wedding. She wore like a beautiful gold dress. She looked just stunning and it was, they were just so happy. It was just such a happy time and there's so many videos of it and just so beautiful. One year after their party, they had their real wedding, July of 2007. It was, I want to say either mid or late July. It wasn't in the beginning of July. I know that for sure. But once again, that was even beautiful. And people say that when she came down the aisle, their jaws just dropped because she was just the most stunning bride they'd ever seen. And everyone just loves Sissy. So why wouldn't they drop their jaw when they saw her? So once Sissy graduated from college, she got her associate's degree, excuse me, associate's degree, that doesn't make any sense. She got a job teaching social studies right away for a high school called the School of Classics in Brooklyn. But it wasn't that easy for Jonathan. And just to go back really quickly, that school was in a rougher part of the neighborhood, but she just wanted to help people. Like her goal wasn't to make money. Her goal was to teach and help people, which is beautiful. And she was just amazing at her job she was doing so well that get this her students scored so well at the SATs that they had to redo them because people thought they cheated so they redid it and got the same scores so sissy just was that amazing okay so back to Jonathan he just had a really hard time getting a job and eventually he fessed up he never got a fellowship or a teaching degree and he was lying to everyone the entire time. But Sissy loved Jonathan so much and forgave him. She wanted to see him succeed in life, so she was willing to support him when he went back and retook it. And that would take $25,000, but Sissy was ready for it. Sissy worked, and Jonathan went to school to pay for his degree. And eventually, he got it, which is great. So they were both teachers and Sissy not only paid for his degree, but she also convinced the principal to give her husband a job teaching English there. And they were like the power couple of the high school, but they were teachers. So that just made me laugh a little bit. They were loved by everyone. And Sissy, the beautiful soul she, soul she is, she started a girls leadership club and she founded, it was called uh, the Fairy Godmother Project which helps girls who couldn't afford prom dresses get prom dresses. So it's just so sweet. And it hurts my heart to think about this story. She was just 
breaking down walls and being an amazing person and impacting so many people's lives through her work and just being the person she was. But she was like, "Mm, not enough. I'm also going to get a master's degree. And her husband was like, okay, let's do it together. So they did. They got their master's degree. In 2012, they celebrated their five-year, excuse me, five years of marriage. Well, it was like coming on their anniversary at least. And 4th of July rolls around. And you guys know they have a huge party around 4th of July. They get together. But unfortunately, Sissy is not feeling well. So she goes home. And her loving and beautiful mother, Teresa, gets worried about her because that's what mothers do. So she calls at night to check up on Sissy and Sissy picks up the phone crying. Her mom is just really confused and she's like telling her daughter, if it really is that bad, you should probably go to the hospital. Like if it's making you cry, you should probably go to the hospital. So she's like, okay, like whatever, hangs up the phone and then the next day happens and everything just kind of goes crazy. 911 gets a call from Jonathan frantically saying, my wife is dead, Sissy is dead, and the house was robbed, and this call comes in at about 2.30. Sissy was only 29 years old. She had already accomplished all of this stuff, and she was only 29, and 29 is too young. Like, I'm not saying like, oh, she lived full life, it's fine. No, she did not live life enough. Imagine all of the things she could have done if this sick person wouldn't have done this so he's frantic he's like my wife my wife she's like i think she's dead we've been robbed all this stuff and after jonathan calls 911 he calls his mother-in-law teresa saying the same thing call me back call me back call me back so teresa literally gets the message calls him back and she starts going for the car and as she goes down the stairs her knees just give out because she can't believe what's happening which is totally reasonable, and she gets a neighbor to drive her to the house, which is very good for her because that would have been unsafe. But unfortunately, she drove to their house and saw her daughter's body, and the police would not let her give give her daughter a kiss goodbye or hold her goodbye, which it sounds really cruel, and it it hurts me, honestly. Like, my heart hurts for her, but I also understand that this is a crime. She was murdered and we need to figure out what happened and get as much DNA and not tamper with the evidence. So I wish, I hope that at some point she got to hold her daughter, but I understand at least is what I'm trying to say. Luckily though, while this is all happening, John Sr. comes and he is able to just kind of be with his wife and support her during this horrible, 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 horrible time of her life and while the crime scene is being processed and they're taking evidence jonathan gets taken to the police station to be questioned because the husband always does it what i didn't say that what so he's questioned and they ask him what he did today and he goes through it he goes 9 a.m i went to the school to get supplies 10 a.m i got my car serviced 12 p.m i went to the hardware store got a couple supplies Throughout my day, I texted my wife and let her know what I was doing. So the text of that day, kind of, um, don't know the word I'm trying to say, but it lined up, cooperated, there we go, (laughs) sounding like I really know what I'm doing, 
And his, the location of his phone added up as well. So that's pretty good on their part. So while some detectives questioned Jonathan, others were processing the crime scene. And they found it just a complete mess. There were windows wide open, drawers ripped out of their dressers. The stuff in the drawers just thrown everywhere. Boxes of jewel or jewelry boxes just strewn about. It was just a mess. So on July 10th, the family came together for the funeral and it was just so obvious how amazing Sissy was just from that funeral because people were everywhere. Her students drove two and a half hours just to be there because they, she impacted their life so much. People were just, like I said, everywhere because she had touched all of these people and she, it was a true, true loss when this woman was killed because she was just taken too soon. It was not her time. And it was just so incredibly clear how amazing this woman was. So while the police are hard at work with this investigation, they hear back from the medical examiner and they say that bru the bruising on her body was consistent with falling down the stairs and that she was stabbed roughly 15 times in the back, chest, and neck area, which she died from stab, stab wounds around the neck uh, that perforated her aorta, her lungs, and her jugular. And I don't know about you guys, but when somebody gets stabbed 15 times, that sounds personal. And luckily, I'm not the only person that thinks that because the police also find this kind of weird. Like, if someone goes in to rob someone, why would you feel the need to stab them 50 time, 15 times? And if your goal is to rob someone, you wouldn't want to kill them. You would want to maybe, like, knock them out or something. So it just doesn't make any sense. And this is really hard, too. Unfortunately, she did not. She died by bleeding out, and they can't say how long it took. So hopefully it was so fast or she was knocked out, knocked out because... That's a horrible way to die. And then she was all alone. Just so sad. She was stabbed 11 times in the back and four times in the neck slash chest area. And once again, another reason why it sounds personal, some of the stab marks were so deep that the handle of the knife hit her body and left a mark. So they stabbed so hard, the entire blade went in and it stopped at the handle. So that is just anger and rage in those stabs. Like I said, this did not sit right with the police. So first off, why would they kill her if they just wanted to rob her house? And why would they make it so brutal? And second, how would a home invader get behind her and be so close to her that they could push her down the stairs, you know? And it was daylight, or at least, I guess you don't know for sure if it was daylight, but I'm like pretty sure it was daylight, whatever. Also, another weird thing is that it was daylight in a <laughs> daylight. Sorry. It was in a busy area. So how would the robbers sneak in? Would they use a ladder to get up a window? Cause people would see that they would, they would break it through the door. That would be obvious if it was a main story or main level window, it would look suspicious if people were crawling in through it. So the police just did not like the way this was adding up. It was fishy to say the least. With all this, they decided to focus on the husband because it just seemed like an inside job. Like I said, the husband always does it. 
They saw his alibi and also realized something was smelling really fishy with how precise it was. 9 a.m., 10 a.m., 12 p.m. Very weird. Texts letting her know exactly what he was doing. Weird. So they decided to dig a little deeper, which good on you. They went back to look at video footage of where he went to make sure he was telling the truth. So they found the school footage. They saw him walking into the school, grabbing some stuff, talking to someone, and then leaving. So like, okay, check mark, whatever. They found footage of him getting his car serviced. And they even found footage of him going into a couple of shoe stores just to kill time, but never actually buying anything. So then they go to the hardware store footage, but they didn't find him at the time he said he was there. And they were like, okay. So this is kind of what we thought. Something is weird. And with the lack of hardware foot, hardware store footage, they decided to look closer at the home and look for more evidence. So in a closet, they find a gym bag with a cell phone on it and a bunch of unknown numbers. And they decided to call, call the most common unknown number. And guys, it was Miss Friggin' Pumpkin. So Miss Pumpkin was a prostitute who he called the morning of his wife's death. So I guess it was like kind of mid-morning, whatever. But the morning of her freaking death, he calls a sex worker and arranges a time to meet the day his wife dies. Scumbag to say the least, because obviously that means that he's been cheating on his wife the whole time. So they brought Miss Pumpkin into the police station for questioning, and she was like super helpful and cooperative, just giving the answers right away. So she said that Jonathan was with her at 12 p.m. the day of the murder. So a little different than a hardware store, one might say just a smidge. He had spent $300 that day to cheat on his wife. So, <laughs> great guy. Really great guy. She knew Mike, or she, excuse me, she knew him as Mike, and she saw him every six to eight weeks. So, once again, just really, really killing it right now, Jonathan. Thank you so much. They first met in 2009. So, this has been going on for a very long time. Three years very sad. So during the investigation, Jonathan hired his own defense attorney, but he was not made known or it was not made known that he was a suspect yet. So that seemed kind of fishy on his part. <laughs> you guys are going to love this. He stayed at his parents' house during this time because obviously he couldn't stay at his house. And a month after the murder, he started seeing sex workers once a week. Wait for it. At his parents' house. So originally, when he first met Pumpkin, he had brought her back to their house. So I'm not sure exactly which house they were living in at that time. It could have been her parents' basement or their actual house. But either way, screw you, dude. And then after that, they were meeting at motels. And now at this point, he's bringing them to his parents' house. So really, really, really not looking good for you, Jonathan. Really not looking good. You guys are going to hate him, by the way, like at the end of this. Obviously, like it, he's a horrible person for taking the life of Sissy, but it just gets worse and worse and worse. So police had found out that once again, being the baddie that she is, Sissy got her master's degree and 
graduated with honors, and they were waiting for Jonathan's. Well, Jonathan's letter never came in, and eventually it came out that he never enrolled to get his master's degree. That's right, guys. He was pocketing the money, and he used it for sex workers because he was living a double life. He spent roughly $50,000 on sex workers instead of going to school to get his master's degree with his wife. So he would drop his wife off at school, go somewhere else, and be with sex workers with the money that they were making. So police found this out and were like, huh, that seems a little fishy. So this guy, like I said, sucks and he's just going to get worse. And guys, as hard as it's going to be, you can't storm the jail and kill him. Just hold it in. Go do a workout. Go for a run. But just don't don't go to violence because you're going to want to, but hold it in. Because honestly, he's really not worth our time. This story is for Sissy. It's not for him. I'm just making sure everyone knows how big of a piece of crap he is. So, before Sissy was taken away from this world, before the beautiful, beautiful Sissy was taken away, she had found out what was happening because he couldn't hide this forever. And somehow she found out about the sex workers too. I don't know exactly if she had found like the hidden cell phone or if she just assumed because it was so much money that it had to have been that or drugs. I would also think that would be another guess, but she found out. And she called her mom crying. And it's a little, little confusing timeline. I don't, I think she found out prior to the 4th of July. But she called her mom crying. And her mom was totally there for her, totally supported her with whatever she was doing. And she told her mom, please don't tell anyone. Don't tell little John. Don't tell dad. Just keep this to yourself. I'll figure it out. Because... I feel like she might have felt embarrassed and it's nothing to feel embarrassed about. It's just sick on his part and it makes him look horrible and I feel like people just sympathize with you, but I totally get not wanting other people to know. So on the 4th of July, when she didn't feel good, she literally didn't feel good, but it was because she didn't feel good about her husband, like her husband's behavior made her sick and that's why she went home. And she was crying because, once again, the situation she was in. So I don't know if... I don't think it was the same night. It could have been, but I don't know for sure. It didn't specifically say that. They said that she had told her mom and called her mom crying. And then she also called her mom that night. And her mom said that she should go to the hospital if she feels sick. So it's not for certain if that was the same night. But either way, his behavior made her sick. And the next day was when... Well, after the 4th of July is when she was murdered. So detectives subpoenaed the laptop. And it's kind of ironic that I did this case while, well, in this time, because there's another case, the Brian Walsh case, that's going on or is being finished up or is finished. But it was really recent where he had killed his wife and he had just a bunch of ridiculous and idiotic Google searches about the murder and they used that against him. So the same thing kind of happened in this case where they found a bunch of incriminating Google searches. One of them was how to clean up a crime scene. Another one was does bleach clean up DNA, how to throat slash, how to destroy DNA, how to snap someone's neck. So this guy just went crazy and he's so stupid. 
So November 13th, 2012, Jonathan is finally arrested for her murder four months later. And the next day, this guy pleads not guilty. And I shouldn't even say guy because he's scum. Just true, true scum. And he is really good at hiding it because he got so lucky to marry this beautiful person and take her away from us. So, oh my gosh, I just get so heated thinking about it because he just never deserved her. Never. The family said that they knew it was him the entire time because it was too brutal to be anyone else. And they were totally on it. They must be true crime fans because any true crime fan would look at this case and be like, no, it's personal. There's absolutely no way a robber, a random person would do that. It has to be someone close that has a lot of anger. They knew it. So right away, they just knew it. Three years later, in 2015, a case is finally made against Jonathan. And there are constant hearings and different things. I don't know the exact uh, process of court, but there were a lot of different things. And the family was just getting really, really worn out because they're like, it's so obvious that he did this. Why can't we just get a conviction? But the defense did everything they could to keep him out of jail to postpone this for as long as they could and there were some issues that they threw at the court one of them the biggest one was the fact that the warrant was made out to the wrong address and they tried to get all of the evidence thrown out that was taken from the house because the warrant was for the wrong address but luckily the judge was like no that's stupid it's so clear that it was meant for this house it's just an office error it's fine so all the evidence, the phone, the laptop that was left. So great. Really, really great. The story that the detectives put together was that Sissy had confronted Jonathan and it started to get into a heated argument and confronted him about like the sex workers and he pushed her down the stairs, but that didn't kill her. That's when he got the knife and stabbed her like a freaking monster. He went, then he went to go clean up the crime scene or I guess not clean up, sorry, to stage it to look like a robbery. Now, I first thought it was one way. I thought that maybe after the murder happened that he went and started Google Googling stuff. But once I found out more searches, because they're not all in one spot, I read a bunch of articles to find them all. I realized that maybe he did some searches prior to the death and then other with other searches, I thought maybe he did two searches, one prior to the death and one after the death. Either way, from those searches, I realized that Jonathan is, in fact, a lazy piece of crap because he started searching like throat slashing and um, cut, uh, what's it called? Getting rid of DNA, um, breaking the neck. And that makes it either one look like murder or he's trying to get rid of her body. And he realized how hard that is to completely get rid of all DNA evidence. So he's like, no, that's too hard. I'm just going to trash the place and make it look like a robbery and it'll be fine. What a freaking idiot. He's so lazy. I just want to punch him in the face. Gosh. So he does the Google searches either after he kills her or it might have been like the night prior. And that also leads me to think like maybe there was never an argument. Maybe he never, or she never confronted him. Maybe he just started this all off and he's like, well, I have to get rid of her because she knows my dirty little secret. I don't really know. It's hard to know for sure. Only one person really knows and he's just a piece of crap. So, 
Unfortunately, the true story may never come out. Or maybe this is the true story. I don't know. So after he's done staging this whole thing, he starts on his alibi. He starts running errands, going to the school, and then going to the auto body shop, just going in the sneaker store, and then saying that he went to this place while texting his deceased wife's phone, knowing fully well that he killed her, and he's just peeling time. This guy is so cold-blooded, so cold-blooded because he talk. he goes in that school. You can see him. He seems fine. He doesn't seem nervous. He talks to someone. He goes to the auto body shop. He goes in the sneaker store and legitimately looks at sneakers and looks fine. Then two hours prior, oh, I guess I could say just 10 o'clock, he calls Miss Pumpkin and goes and has sex with her after he murdered his wife. How can you do that and be a human being? Somebody tell me. Actually, no, because I don't want to know because that is so messed up. So after that, he goes back home and then he calls 911. And you can actually hear this 911 call. And just like everyone says, everyone grieves differently. But this phone call, I maybe it's just because I knew he was guilty. It just sounds fake. You know, it sounds just off you know it's not that he's acting or overacting or underacting or something like that it just doesn't sound right you know so this is the story that the detective is presented to court and also another thing to note is that the entire time not just the final court hearing or the final day in court but every time he had to sit in front of a judge he had no emotions at all whatsoever no remorse for his crime. Just disgusting. And actually, at one point, Sissy's mom makes like a poster and it's it was a really beautiful poster. And it was basically like saying justice for Simonette or Sissy. I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was just because she was so sick of it. It had been so long since her daughter had been murdered and she didn't think that she would be at peace until this was put to rest. So she, she just wanted this to happen. And she wrote, letters to people. So Sissy's mom, Teresa, is a baddie. Just like, now we know why Simonette's a baddie, because her mom is. And her mom is so cute too. There are so many videos of her just like dancing around constantly, just so happy. And now her heart is just broken. So it's just another reason why we hate this guy. He broke this. Well, no, I'm not going to say that. He did not break. He hurt this family because this family cannot be broken. But little John, another thing about little John, how amazing he is, he had to fight the urge to jump over that like little, you know, gate, I guess, and kill him with his bare hands because he wanted to. Just the fact that he had killed his sister and then had sex with a sex worker, like just set him off. So you know what, guys, if little John can hold back, we can hold back too. But after two and a half hours, which is not a lot of time, the jury found 34-year-old Jonathan Creepy, <laughs> whoops, Freudian slip, Krepke, Creppy, guilty of second-degree murder and was sentenced to 25 years to life, as he should. The family was so happy. They were just, they had the biggest smiles on their face. And there was a video that said, I think it was Teresa saying Simonette can finally find peace. She can finally be laid to rest because this is over. He is in jail. 
One thing that does bother me about this whole thing is it's not related to the case, but on the funeral homes page, it like has that description about like what who Simonette was a part of and stuff like that. And it says, beloved wife of Jonathan. And it's like, just take that out. Just take that out because we don't need that name anywhere near hers. You know, also, it is so frustrating that his name is Jonathan and the dad's name is John and the brother's name is John. So that's why I never called him John because I hate that his name was Jonathan, but whatever. So Jonathan is in jail. Great. Love to hear it, but you're going to hate this too. So this is another reason why you hate him. He has a pen pal account online and here we go. His like headline or whatever says, Hey ladies, are you awesome? Like I am. I'm looking for a fun, intelligent girl to stimulate my brain and possibly my heart. I'm not married. I don't have any kids. No baby mama drama here. Huh. Maybe that's because you murdered your wife. You scumbag loser. No one's gonna like you. So he goes on and on. I really just don't even want to read the rest of the stuff because he just makes me want to gag. It's disgusting. But he says he's innocent and he's working on getting out. And he basically begs for anyone to talk to him, essentially. He says, oh, yeah, I'm handsome, too. No, you're not. Sorry, you're not. And also, if you were innocent, wouldn't you, I don't know, grieve for the loss of your wife and not say, oh, I'm not married, so no baby mama drama. You could say, I'm currently looking for the killer of my beloved wife, but you don't. So kind of weird. I want to punch him in the throat, honestly. Like, ugh. Teresa has tried to get it taken down, but unfortunately she can't. His defense attorney has advocated for him to let them keep it up. So that sucks, but there's only so much we can do sometimes. So there are so many home videos, thankfully, of Teresa, Teresa, I'm sorry, of Simonette growing up and they're all so beautiful. So it's so nice that they still have those beautiful memories to hold on for her. But there is one video that probably doesn't sit well with them anymore. The video is at their engagement party and they had a really big cake and Jonathan is getting ready to cut the cake. When he starts to swing the knife almost recklessly. And this just doesn't sit well because they started their lives together with him swinging this knife around. And Jonathan essentially took away the life of Simonette by recklessly using a knife. So that that video, they can't really watch it anymore. Well, they can, but... It just doesn't feel right because of the way he uses that knife. It's almost eerie to watch the video and see him do that because I did get to see that video. So it's just, it's so weird. It's so weird. And Teresa feels the same way. But guys, I just want to say again, Teresa yells this as loud as she can. Simonette was just this beautiful, beautiful person. And it is just so heartbreaking that she was taken away from this world way, way, way too soon. And that's why I do this, so that people know about people like Simonette, because she would have made a huge splash if she was not taken away from this world. 
But that is the tragic story of the beautiful Simonette Mapes. I hope you guys enjoyed learning about her and I hope you guys just truly loathe Jonathan because you know I do. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Um, you guys know the usual YDWK podcast on Instagram, YDWK podcast uh, at gmail.com, YDWK, or I think it's actually just you don't want to know on Facebook. If you have a case suggestion, if you have a story, just send me an email, follow me on Instagram, follow me on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. Bye-bye.